you. Well, just before we look to God's Word tonight, I want to take just a few moments to just communicate a little bit, at least try to communicate a little bit, how grateful and uh, encouraged I am and have been by the vision of this conference. Steve, I know this is not your vision alone. I recognize there's a lot of people who have put a lot of thought in prayer, but you kind of run the point here, and so I'm just so grateful for uh, the vision that you've cast and It was good to hear you speak as a pastor about all of the people from your church who have served us. It's one thing for you to speak as a pastor. It's another um, for us to say thank you. So would you thank them for us as well? We have been so served by all of the folks downstairs and throughout the building throughout these days. And again, it's just, it, it is so encouraging to kind of just be a little bit of a part of this vision for Atlantic Canada. And to see what your desire and the other folks around their desire is to see as many pastors, as many people in the area, kind of get a vision for what gospel-centered church life, what gospel-centered pastoral ministry looks like. And so it's been a privilege to be just a little part of that. And a big part of that for me, I'm sure I'm speaking for Paul and for Daniel and Angela as well, has been the opportunity to get to know and have conversations with many of you. Some of those conversations have been very brief and uh, just more or less kind of getting to know people briefly, but there's also been extended conversations. In fact, this afternoon, I had the opportunity to be with um, someone who's become a friend, uh, met four or five years ago, and um, we just had an extended time this afternoon. I just feel filled up because of time spent. So Pete, once again, thank you, brother, for our time together. Um, it's also been a privilege to share this uh, service with Paul. Um, Paul's become a dear friend over the years as well, and the things that Steve said the other day when he was introducing Paul about me had nothing to do with anything other than friendship, I trust. And I looked so forward to being here with you, Paul, as well, and to share, and then to get to know Daniel and Angela. This has been a, a sweet thing. I, I just want to let you in on a little bit of what was going on in my mind this morning as I sat right down there and listened to both of the messages this morning, both of them bringing conviction in very specific ways. I mean, here you get invited to be a speaker uh, at a conference and you're sitting there realizing that the real reason God brought you up here was to hear um, the messages that I've been hearing. And so both of those messages this morning just... God using in very specific ways to bring conviction. And so I'm sure you can resonate with this a little bit. While I'm experiencing the conviction of God, at the same time, my mind's going, oh, my teaching just feels so mundane and pedestrian compared to this prophetic word that I'm hearing right now and these words that are being spoken. And so I needed this morning to just speak, to hear God speak conviction back into my heart about God and about his word and about the responsibility of teaching, and so I am just, again, um, affected by a sense of privilege in opening God's Word to us, and I invite you to do that right now. Would you please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. 
We have been looking these evenings at this section of Mark's Gospel from chapter 8 to chapter 12, where Jesus is very focused on teaching his disciples what it means, what it looks like to follow him. Over and over again, you'll notice in these chapters as you read through this center section of Mark's gospel, you'll just see Jesus over and over again very self-consciously teaching his disciples, gathering them, sometimes physically gathering them, having them huddle up around him, teaching them about following him, living as Christ once, as Christians. And we're going to see the same thing here again tonight in Mark chapter 12. Now there's a little bit of a change. Uh, if you have, happen to have your uh, conference booklets in front of you, you're going to see a title that says, I think something like, is Jesus in charge or not? There were actually two messages that I wanted to um, kind of consider, I wanted to preach a representative message from each of these three chapters. Chapter 10, which we did on Tuesday night. Chapter 11, which we did last night. Chapter 12, which we're going to do tonight. But there were two messages that I was kind of considering. And when Steve asked for the sermon titles, I was veering this way. And since then, I have veered that way. And so I'm actually going to do a different message than that. Is Jesus in charge or not? So would you just in that place in your conference uh, booklet, scratch out that title and replace it with this. How to give or how to live. How to give or how to live. And we're going to find that here at the end of chapter 12. We see here what I'm guessing is probably a familiar story to many of you. And I'm also guessing that there will be a little bit of a surprise for you when you see what's really going on here. Mark chapter 12, verse 38. Now remember, Jesus is in the temple, and he's teaching. Look back at verse 35 for just a moment. You see it says, as Jesus taught in the temple... So all of what we see going on really throughout chapter 12 and certainly here now into the end of chapter 12 is going on while Jesus is teaching in the temple. In fact, in just a few days, when that group comes to arrest him in the garden, do you remember what Jesus says? Day after day, I was with you teaching in the temple. Why didn't you arrest me then? Well, here in chapter 12, we're in the middle of that. That's what's going on. Jesus is teaching in the temple. Now, look with me at verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and, for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny, and he called his disciples to him. You see what's happening there? 
Jesus is once again about to teach them something about discipleship, something about what it means to follow him. He's gathering them. He calls his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So, have you ever had the experience when you find out that something is not anything like what you thought it was? Maybe you've met somebody or you've seen somebody, maybe even in the context of your church gatherings, you observed them, or maybe someone came to you with a little bit of an opinion about this particular person and Somehow you formed an opinion about that person. Maybe someone else kind of gave you some interpretation of them. So you're going along thinking this is what that person is like. And then one day you actually have a conversation with that person and you get to know them. And as you walk away from that conversation, you find yourself thinking that person is not anything like I thought she was like. That person is not anything like I thought he was like. You ever have that happen? Well, I recently had an experience somewhat like that with my Bible. More specifically, with this passage. The story of this widow putting her two small coins into the offering has always been, in my mind, a story about sacrificial giving. Isn't that how you've heard it? It's a story about sacrificial giving. In fact, I've been operating with that understanding of this passage for pretty close to 50 years now. I probably first heard this story in Sunday school as a boy when I was five or six years old, and that has just been reinforced over the years of reading and hearing this story many times through that particular lens. Now, I can say that there have been occasionally questions in my mind as I've heard that particular interpretation. There are some things that haven't been totally satisfying, but really that's been my understanding of what's happening here. But not long ago, I read a very different take, and as I've been reading and thinking over this passage over the recent weeks, I've come to realize this passage is not anything at all like I thought it was. I do not believe that the main thing here with this widow and her offering is a lesson for us on giving. In fact, I'm not sure that's there at all. The main thing it's about is what happens to people in a religious system that pretends to live for God and isn't really living for God. It's about how the lack of truly honoring God, truly living for God within a religious system ends up misleading people, and instead of feeding people, it feeds on people, and I want to show you that this evening. But first, let me ask you a question at the risk of kind of stirring you up a little bit tonight. I don't want to tempt you to sin, and I certainly don't want to tempt you to be distracted because I need you to follow me and stay focused this evening. But nonetheless, here's my question. Are there things that stir you up to righteous anger? 
Is there anything that stirs you up? And I'm not just talking about little things like someone cutting you off in traffic. I'm talking about big things, justice kind of things. Like maybe, maybe it's what we heard about this morning. The Paul, was it 100,000 abortions annually in Canada? In my country, there's been a study recently of how many abortions have happened since Roe v. Wade, 1973. 55 million abortions. Just let that number sink in. 55 million human lives taken. That's been stirred up in our country recently even more by the uncovering of this horrific thing that has gone on in the city of Philadelphia. Maybe it's that that stirs you up to righteous anger. Or maybe, maybe it's the pornography industry. People profiting off the dehumanizing of people on one end and the enslavement and misery of countless who knows how many people on the other end, maybe that's what stirs you up to righteous anger. Or maybe what stirs you up to righteous anger is religion, religious systems, false religious systems that take advantage of people and manipulate people into giving their money so that instead of being able to care for their needs and the needs of their family, they end up funding the extravagant lives of the leaders of these religious systems. Now notice, please, I said in my question, righteous anger. And I said that because in our anger against those things, we reflect the righteous heart of God. We reflect the heart of Jesus. Jesus hates those things. We see here in this passage his hatred particularly regarding that last thing, a false and misleading and oppressive religious system. That's what emerges so strongly in these verses at the end of Mark chapter 12. So let me just once again set this scene in the context of what's happening here. Jesus has come with his disciples into Jerusalem. They've been there now for a couple days. And in just a few days, Jesus will be hung on a cross. He'll be crucified, just like he said was going to happen. So this is Tuesday, as best we understand. It might be Wednesday, but probably Tuesday of that week. And Jesus has just finished earlier in chapter 12 with these various encounters with these groups of religious leaders. The Pharisees and the Herodians have come at him in the temple. The Sadducees have come at him in the temple. The scribes, these were the keepers of the law, the experts of the Old Testament law. They've come at him. And this has not just been some kind of mildly charged debate. Now, Jesus is absolutely opposed to what they're doing and what they're teaching and what's going on in people's lives because of their religious leadership. He is marked by righteous anger. And he's already, as we saw last night, just ripped through the temple driving out the people buying and selling. He has spoken out clearly and strongly against these false teachers. And now, after this very pointed exchange that we see earlier in chapter 12 with those religious leaders, Jesus begins this very direct 
denunciation. Look at verse 38 once again. And in his teaching, he said, this is not private instruction with his disciples yet. Jesus is still walking through the courtyards of the temple. He's encountering various groups of people in the temple. He's saying to them, listen, you need to beware of the scribes. I mean, can you imagine this? The scribes were the people that they looked to, the people that they kind of sought for guidance and instruction. Their role was supposed to be to show the people how God wanted them to live. They were supposed to be the guides and the protectors of the people. And Jesus is now purposefully walking through the courtyard, coming up to various gatherings of people and saying to them, beware of them. Beware of the scribes to as many people as he can. You you need to be aware of the scribes. They are misleading you. You need to be aware of the religious system. It's misleading you. There's all this, this pretense and show, but they are misleading you, and instead they're actually feeding on you. Listen, if you want the full speech, turn, in fact, let's go there for a moment. Turn to Matthew chapter 23. This is the very same occasion, Matthew chapter 23, Where we are in the Gospel of Mark, Matthew just goes into much greater detail. Listen to what Jesus says as Matthew records, chapter 23. I'm just going to read the first first part of this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers, And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Well, Matthew goes on. You can read. And Jesus ultimately ends now back in Mark chapter 12, verse 40. He ends by saying, they will receive the greater condemnation. And it's in that context that this interesting little episode with the widow, happens. Verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury. This would have been in what's called the court of women. It wasn't just for women, but this was the farthest that a woman could go into the temple precincts. So Jesus has made his way from the outer court into the inner courtyard of the temple where along one side of this court of the women there is this row of 13 chests and on the top of them there's an opening that's kind of shaped like a, like a trumpet so that people could put their money into these chests. And a lot of money got brought in that way. 
I mean, lots and lots and lots of money. That's how these religious leaders got paid. That's how this newly renovated temple, with all of its splendor, got built. And in that courtyard, opposite those treasure boxes, there would be some places to sit and watch. Do you see what's happening here? There's benches so you could sit and watch people give their money. It was designed to put the giving on display. So Jesus goes in there, and he goes over to those benches, verse 41. He sat down opposite the treasury, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Now just think of this for a second. Jesus is no doubt weary. He's had a busy couple days. He's heavy-hearted, deeply grieved over all that's going on in this religious trafficking all around the temple, and he sees all of these people. He's burdened by all of these people. So Jesus is watching what's happening. Look at the end there of verse 41. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny, and he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, look, I say to you, This poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, if you just read those two verses by themselves, it could be easy to think that Jesus is making some point about sacrificial giving. But remember... When you read your Bible, context is so important to getting what God's Word is really saying to us. You've got to ask the question, why is this here? What is this doing here? How does this relate to what's going on here? The context here is completely one of judgment. It's denunciation of a religious system. The condemnation of these leaders and this religious system going on in the table, that's what's happening in verses 38 through 40. In fact, take a look at what comes immediately after this story of the widow. I mean, just ignore that chapter division. And notice what happens immediately afterward. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And the fact of the matter was it was an amazing structure. It was really spectacular architecture. No wonder it caught that disciple's attention. But look at what Jesus says, verse 2. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In other words, this whole thing is coming down. This whole building With all of this trafficking, all of this religious system is coming down. Jesus is speaking words of judgment, general judgment. And then there is this very specific judgment spoken back in verse 40. Remember this, beware the scribes. And then Jesus says, they will receive the greater condemnation. Do you see what's happening? This widow in verse 42 is one of the widows, do you remember verse 40? These Pharisees devour widows' houses. 
This widow is one of the widows whose house is being devoured by this religious system. She's got nothing but these two coins. And yet she's putting it in the box. What she has to live on. Is that what God wants? Really? For her to have nothing? Folks, this is not a model for giving. It's a vivid picture of the effect of a false, not God-honoring religion, and it breaks Jesus' heart sitting there. Along with all of the other heartbreaking stuff that he has seen in the temple, the other givers, they too are affected by this system, but because they have the means, the effect is not as dramatic. But the effect on this widow and others like her, who, by the way, was supposed to be protected and cared for, I mean, you can go to any number of, I think it's safe to say, 20 or 30 places in your Old Testament that speak about the responsibility to care for widows, to protect widows, to provide for widows. I mean, you start in the book of Exodus, go right through Deuteronomy, it's all over the place, all the way to the end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, there is very clear instructions that widows are to be cared for. But the effect of this system on widows because of their situation, was profound. They are vulnerable, in need of protection, and these leaders are purposefully taking advantage of them. So, folks, something terrible is happening here. What the scribes are seizing as an opportunity to enhance themselves and their lives, Jesus sees and it breaks his heart, this poor widow. The effect on her is far greater than others because that's all she's got. She's gone from poor to destitute. I want to say it again. Verses 43 and verse 44 are not some teaching on giving. This widow is not being held up as some example. Now, we don't know what was in her heart. She might well have been trusting God. But what Jesus is pointing out to his disciples here is an example of the effect of a false religious system that is not truly about God, that is not truly honoring God, that is not truly living for God. Let's look back at Jesus' words in verse 38. In his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. The scribes would have these, these kind of long robes that they would wear. They were, they were fancy, and they were expensive. And notice, Jesus says, they liked walking around in them. It got them noticed. It got them revered. They liked that. And Jesus goes on to say they like greetings in the marketplace. They would be greeted in the temple and in those environs with titles of dignity, exalted teacher, father, master, and that made them feel big and they liked that. And they would sit up front in the synagogues, up on the platform, so everyone could see them kind of elevated above everyone else, and they liked that And at feasts and at banquets, they wanted the places of honor so that they could be the center of attention. Remember that time that Jesus told that parable about the banquet? 
And he says, I I tell this parable because, the gospel writer tells us, he had noticed how the religious leaders had been picking out the places of honor at the table. And in verse 40, it says, for a pretense, they make long prayers. They're not really talking to God. It's all pretend. They want people to think highly of them. Do you see what they're all about? What the scribes are all about? They pretend to worship God. They pretend to be serving God. They pretend to honor God. But really they are worshiping and serving and honoring themselves. That's what they love. They don't love God. And then right in the middle of that description, Jesus drops like a bombshell these words. They devour widows' houses. They would take advantage of them directly or indirectly through this whole system. And he ends with these ominous, just ominous words, they will receive the greater condemnation. Folks, there's no question. These religious leaders are opposed to God and they are leading others away from God. And if there's any question about that, just remember that it's these religious leaders who are claiming to honor God who at this very moment are bent on murdering the Son of God. And by Friday, they will manage to get him hung on a cross and killed, which unbeknownst to them, will be the source of salvation and forgiveness for everyone who believes. Even for them, if they repent and believe, which the book of Acts tells us some did. So Jesus is speaking judgment. And it's in that frame that this incident with the widow happens. And Jesus points it out, and he says to his disciples, Do you see this? Look at this poor widow. This false religion is devouring her. These other people have the wherewithal, even with their big gifts, to kind of carry on. But this woman has nothing. Notice, please, there is no commendation of this this woman. Jesus is just making an observation as to what's happening. He's just stating the facts. And he is saying to his disciples something profound. But folks, it's not about giving. Well, then what? What's he saying? Remember, we always need to be asking, what is God's word calling for from us? If you remember from the first night the questions that I encouraged you to be thinking, the wigs and water question, wigs, W-I-G-S, what is God saying? And water, W-A-T-R, what are the expected responses? When I was teaching at Trinity, I just would regularly encourage the students there to imagine God's face looking out at them from behind every page of Scripture. God's speaking, and He's got an expression on His face. There's something He's trying to communicate. There's some greatly desired effect that God is seeking to achieve. So what is it? I've tried to faithfully remind you over these last three evenings that every time we preach, we should be thinking, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with the people? So let me just make sure that we notice something here. This is Jesus teaching his disciples. Verses 43 and 44 are Jesus teaching his disciples. He's teaching them something about 
how he wants them to live. Verse 43. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, so ever since back in chapter 8, verse 39, when when Jesus said, if anyone would come after me and follow me, he's been specifically teaching them about what it looks like to do that. He's calling them how to live. Look back at chapter 9 for just a moment, verse 35. And he sat down and he called the twelve. Chapter 10, verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and he said to them. Here again, chapter 12, verse 43. And he called his disciples to him and said to them. He's teaching them throughout this entire section what it looks like to follow him He's teaching them how to live as true Christians. And he's teaching them, there's no question about this, but he's teaching them, training them how to live, not how to give. So let me bring this as best I can to us with three specific points of application trying to answer the question, what does this say to us as followers of Christ? I'm going to start with a very broad principle. Application point number one. Being a Christian, a true follower of Christ, will make a profound difference in what you live for. Being a Christian will make a profound difference in what you live for. Jesus is telling his disciples, he's telling us, don't live like the scribes. Don't do that. Beware that. Look what they live for. They're living for themselves. Following me will make you live very different from that. You know, they do these surveys once in a while with, um, with so-called Christians, with born-again Christians, and they find that with these so-called Christians, that their beliefs and their lifestyles and their divorce rates are virtually no different from the world. And so these surveys draw the conclusion that, you know, Christians are really not that different from the rest of the world. Well, I actually think there's a more accurate conclusion to those surveys, that there's a lot of people who claim to be Christians who are not. Being a Christian, a true Christian, will make a profound difference in how you live and what you live for. I love the way that David Platt talks about this in his book, Follow Me. He has a unique way of making this point. Listen to what he says. Imagine that you and I set up a meeting for lunch at a restaurant and you arrive before I do. You wait and wait and wait, but 30 minutes later I still haven't arrived. When I finally show up completely out of breath, I say to you, I'm so sorry I'm late. When I was driving over here, my car had a flat tire, and I pulled over on the side of the interstate to fix it, and while I was fixing it, I accidentally stepped into the road, and a Mack truck going about 70 miles per hour suddenly hit me head on. It hurt, but I picked myself up, finished putting on the spare tire, and I drove over. If this were the story I shared, you would know I was either deliberately lying or completely deceived. Why? 
Because if someone gets hit by a Mack truck going 70 miles per hour, that person is going to look very different than he did before. In light of this, I feel like I'm on pretty safe ground in assuming that once people truly come face to face with Jesus, the God of the universe in the flesh, and Jesus reaches down into the depths of their hearts, saves their soul from the clutches of sin, and transforms their lives to follow him, they're going to look different. Very different. People who claim to be Christians, while their lives look no different from the rest of the world, are clearly not Christians. When people came to Christ and placed their faith in Him, when people come to Christ and place their faith in Him, He does a work in them. There is an elemental transformation. If anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. We're not perfect, but now we live with a real devotion to God. There's no pretense. This is real. This is who we are. We want God truly honored. We want God's will to be actually done. Our living is a matter of real devotion to something other than ourselves. We're living for Christ, and we are eager, focused, that our lives magnify and make much of Him And listen, that by no means means that our lives will be easy or trouble-free. Sometimes God allows challenges. In fact, He brings challenges to get us increasingly focused on Him and living for Him. You know, we often turn to God when the foundations of our lives are shaking, not knowing that it's God who's shaking them in order to turn us to Him. So... In connection with this first big principle, let me just offer this pastoral advice. Recognize and regularly acknowledge your need for, your dependence on, your devotion to God. It's so easy when you're capable to kind of go about your business on your own strength and you can... Kind of be less aware of your weakness. My wife reminded me of this the other day. She just said to me, you know, you just can appear so capable at times. People see you as capable. I think sometimes in our churches there, that perception can, can be generally around people. I know in my church, I don't know what it's like in your church, but there can be this sometimes perception that, that you've got to hit a certain standard. You've got to meet some level of capability spiritually and While some of us can be tempted to live like that and go about our business in our own strength, the fact is it's not true. We're a bunch of forgiven sinners saved by God's grace, and we need to recognize and regularly acknowledge our dependence on God, how deeply dependent we are on God. And we should regularly give Him thanks for giving us one another to help each other. Like I said the other night, we're just carrying one another into heaven, and we should regularly declare to God our desire to live entirely for Him. Second, application point number two. Truly following Jesus will produce an integrity of life. Now, I'm trying to say something there with that word integrity. Truly following Christ will produce an integrity of life. There will be no pretense There will be no showy stuff 
just for appearances. Your religion won't be an appearance. You'll pray because you actually believe in God and you want to talk to Him. And you have something to say to Him and you know you need Him. C.S. Lewis said at one point, I pray because I can't help it. It's who I am. It flows out of what I truly believe. You'll share with others about Jesus and what he's done in your life because he's actually done something in your life. I, I had the most interesting experience a couple weeks ago. I regularly on the weekends will go to a local university, to the library there, to just get away from the office and get some focused study in. And on my way out that afternoon... I had my satchel with my books in it, and there's one of these little gizmos that they have in libraries that kind of go off if you're stealing library books, you know? Well, I walked through that, and it went off. And I knew I didn't have any library books, and so I kind of looked back at the person at the desk and went like this, and he said, well, that happens once in a while, but you've got to come over here and show me what's in your satchel. So I laid my satchel there, and of course, the first book I pulled out was this. And he said, is that a Bible? I said, yes, it is. By the way, I'd been praying because so much of my life is caught up in dealing with believers. I'd been praying, God, could you maybe give me an opportunity to interact with an unbeliever about my faith? And so I pull out my Bible and he says, is that a Bible? And he says, and I said, yes, it is. And he says, well, what do you think of it? Well, I believe it's God speaking to us, and I believe everything in it. And off we went on a conversation. I remember right at that moment thinking, do I have anything to say to this man? And God be praised, I had something to say. Because Jesus has done something in my life. And this book has had a lot to do with it. And so we're going to share our faith. We're going to tell others about Jesus because Jesus actually has done something in our lives. You'll give not out of duty but because you're committed to the work of God. You'll worship with God's people on Sunday morning with all your heart because you really love God. You'll serve others, not use others, because your heart's been changed. Which leads to application point number three. Out of this life of integrity, authenticity and reality, out of that life will flow service to others, caring for others, that is marked by compassion and justice and mercy, not taking advantage of people. Out of that life of integrity will flow service to others, caring for others that's marked by compassion and justice and mercy, not taking advantage of people. So just for one concrete practical area, this third point of application will have a great effect on your giving. You'll give because you care about people and you want them to hear the gospel. You'll give because you want to release money for the cause of Christ. You'll give because you care more about the spread of the gospel than you do about padding your own comfortable lifestyle. You'll give out of a genuine commitment to God. Now, giving is just one little way, one little way that our lives can serve others. I focus on it because it's mentioned here 
in a way that is related to selfish religion. And Jesus is teaching his disciples to live differently. And when you live differently, your life will flow out in care and compassion and mercy toward others. And there's a thousand ways that that can look. So, what's the bottom line? Following Jesus will completely reorient your life. Your life will be marked by a controlling desire to live for God in all of your life so that your life will have an integrity to it and it will be integrated by this commitment to follow Christ and out of that will flow God's love for others. No pretense, only reality. The reality of a life truly transformed by Jesus and now dedicated to living for him. To his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I have uh, prayed each one of these nights for the same thing. I want to pray that again. We've been looking at this part of your word that speaks to us about very specific things, what it looks like to follow Christ. Father, we want to thank you for sending your Son Thank you that he came to give his life as a ransom. Father, we also thank you that he is the risen Savior who now, having given us his life, lives as our helper, our strength, our supplier, our guide, our master, our king, and he calls us to follow him. And so, Lord, I pray that this part of your word you've put in our hands, will in fact be like seed planted in the soil of our hearts that bears fruit even a hundredfold. God, I'm thinking again about our churches. I don't know exactly what you're going to do in each one of our hearts, but Father, I would pray that there would be some translation of this for the good of the people that you've given us to serve. Pray that our shepherding would be marked by our own discipleship, our own following of Christ, and that we as followers of Christ would be effective disciplers so that the people of our churches would be increasingly followers of Christ. God, help us. We thank you for both word and spirit, and we commit now to you as we this evening and tomorrow go our separate ways. We commit to you what you've entrusted to us these few days and we pray, God, make much of it. Accomplish all your purposes, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.